good to see you tonight. We're going to continue our look at miracles. All right, let's pray, and then uh, we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for each one here. Thank you for the ministry that is happening upon this campus while we're in here. We're grateful for the lives that are being poured into, for the things that you are doing and preparing for the generation to come. We thank you for all the servants who make all that possible. We give you the praise and glory for all those wonderful, encouraging things that we get to be a part of. And we thank you that while we're in here, we have this opportunity to come and gather around your word and hear from you. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear tonight. Father, that you would fill this place with your spirit, that we might know that we've been in your presence, that we might know that we've been impacted by your word, and that we might be encouraged because we serve a God who delights to speak to his children. And so thank you in advance for what you'll do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now I pray tonight that as we look at, we're going to look at Mark chapter 1. And what I'm hoping that you gain from this look at miracles is that you're able to see beyond the spectacular and see the purpose of God revealed. And so, for example, as we look at Mark chapter 1, I want you to be paying attention to the way that the chapter unfolds. And so every piece that... that you know, in this chapter, as these gospel uh, sections that we look at, you see the, the clear intentionality that oftentimes, um, you know, which is just one of my uh, big problems with uh, any kind of devotion is, you know, if that's your thing, that's your problem. But it's not my thing and it never will be. Because when you read a piece of scripture, you miss the point of scripture. It's in context. And so if I'm going to read something out of Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read the whole chapter. And, I'm gonna, and then I'm going to read the next chapter. And then I'm going to read the next chapter. And so it's not just, you know, it's not just the pastors preaching through books of the Bible, but that's how you should devotionally study the Bible because God gave it to us that way. And so some man or woman that comes up with some brilliant idea to put this piece over here and this story over here and this thing over here, not a fan. Not a fan. And you neuter the power of the gospel. And I hope tonight is a good, uh, just a good eye-opening experience for us as we see the way God's words put together. So last week we began looking at miracles by Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana. This humble, uh, little, podunk, remote place, you know, this wedding celebration seemed like a, uh, you know, seemed like an odd way, and it was beautiful to see how uh, Pastor Matt brought that to light so that we could see the purpose behind what God was doing. Last week, we saw how Jesus' first miracle was intended to direct our attention beyond the miracle to the greatest miracle of all, 
Not what Jesus did, but who he is. Who he is. And so remember, uh, in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, the Bible says, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And so the, the Bible tells us it's not a mystery, it's not a secret, we're not decoding anything, we're not... We don't learn, you, you won't learn anything but heresy from the Discovery Channel about the Bible. There's nothing secret. and not, it's, What does John want you to know? He tells you in John chapter 2, verse 11. It's clear as a bell. That's exactly what he wants you to see, what God wants you to know. And so Jesus wants us to see the signs of, or John wants us to see the signs of Jesus, that they're about his glory. They're about his glory. So when we turn our attention now to Mark, we're going to see a different take. When Mark begins his account of Jesus' public ministry, he doesn't begin at a wedding celebration. He begins at a synagogue service. And so we have a very different take, a whole different view on purpose. The Bible wants, to, wants us to see something completely different. So in Mark chapter 1, now remember the way uh, we don't have time to go from beginning to end or we'd be here for three hours, but uh, Mark opens his gospel with John the Baptist and then he's preparing the way. Then there's the baptism of Jesus. There's the calling of the disciples. And then we get to verse 21 and here's what the Bible says. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So that's the first clue. You want to underline the word authority. So we see already that Mark is pointing us in a different direction. Because he didn't say as, you know, anything about his glory. Now we're talking about authority. Now understand... Pastor Matt talked about this last week, that Capernaum uh, is a much larger place than Cana. Cana is on the outskirts of Capernaum. And Capernaum was basically Jesus' uh, base of operation for all of his Galilean ministry. And Jesus got a lot of his disciples from Capernaum. So, you know, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, they were all, that's where they were from. That's where Jesus met them and called them to follow him. So where John wants us to see Jesus' glory, Mark wants us to see his authority. His authority. So he goes in and he begins to teach in the synagogue. And there, the people there are astonished at his teaching. Now understand what would happen is there's there's scribes who would be in the synagogue. So the way a Jewish synagogue would work in this time would be that they would go in, they would read some scriptures, but then there would always be a, a point where whoever wanted to share would have an opportunity to share. And of course, I'll, you know, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just open mic night. 
You know, you couldn't just, anybody couldn't do that. Of course, there were, there were safeguards to it. But the scribes, they were, they were the respected teachers of the day. And so they would be the ones who would be in charge of these local synagogues that were scattered all over, you know, all over the area. And these scribes were experts in the law and in tradition. So they were the teachers, but understand they're not, they were very different teachers than you're used to. Because these teachers, their task was similar to my task in the sense that they were, they would declare and protect and explain, but they wouldn't, uh, they, they were, they would not expound, and they were very driven by the tradition of the the, the elders. Mark tells us that later on in his gospel in chapter 7. He talks a lot about that. But So what they would do is they would lean heavily on the, the teaching of the rabbis because they weren't rabbis. But so maybe in the, in the, in the way that uh, we would study commentaries, they would, uh, you know, rely upon the the teaching of the rabbis of the past, but what ended up happening was they got very uh, they got very tangled up in tradition, and so the line got very blurred between here's what God's word says and here's what tradition says, and those things started getting blurry. And understand about the scribes that they weren't interested in innovation; uh, their authority was derived authority, so they. They would just teach what had been taught. See, a rabbi would have the authority to expound and explain maybe a text out of the law or something like that. But a scribe could only just say what had been said by a rabbi. He couldn't take it upon himself or give it his own twist or say, here's how I understand this, or that's not at all how that would work. And so he just had this external derived authority and so basically um you know if you had if you had been to the if you went to the synagogue faithfully every single sabbath uh for decades in capernaum then you never heard anything new it was just the same old things because whatever the rabbis had said in the past is the only thing they would say now so jesus goes in and starts teaching and his message is powerful and it's penetrating and everything's different they had never heard anything like this before and so the people present they immediately began to sense wait a minute what's going on here and here's what we need to understand is that when we look at the way jesus taught and we look at the response of people who heard him teach here's what becomes crystal clear is that what Jesus did to make uh, the words of God come alive is he brought truth into reality and so like for example when you study his parables Jesus is talking about things that we would you know everyday things he's talking about farming and he's talking about you know servants and he's talking about feasts and you know, losing a coin or a sheep. And so it, was, it, it wasn't some high, you know, it was he brought truth into 
reality. He made truth connect to people's lives. And so they had never heard anything like this before. And so the first thing we need to understand is that there's a big difference between speaking about God and speaking from Him and for Him. See, if all you have is someone who's talking about God, that's very different. That's very different from someone who is speaking from God and for God. In other words, from someone who obviously Jesus is God. But the point being is that the difference is, is that the, all they'd heard is people talk about God. And you're gonna, we're going to see something, you know, very shocking here in a few minutes that happens that, you know, I think will be instructive for us. But the thing about it is, is that we don't, you know, I've heard people teach from the Bible and it's dreadfully boring. And you probably have too. And if it's me, don't tell me. But you see, you can have the right material. But here's the thing. In order to, in order to preach the Word of God or teach the Word of God, you have to not only have the Word of God, but you've got to hear from God. And if you don't hear from God, then all you're going to have is what they're used to. And so this is a whole new ball game for them. So this wasn't the authority of human tradition or gifted communication. This was inherent authority, which is very different from derived authority that came from God himself. And in other words, so um, everyone who's ever, uh, you know, been called by God to teach or preach the Word of God, then, then they know when they've heard from God. And when you've heard from God, you have this, you have this supernatural confidence in what's, what you're saying because you know you've heard from God. Does that make sense? Okay, so... Uh, when they're listening, remember that at this moment, they don't know that this is God in front of them. But yet, what they do know is they've never heard teaching like this. They've never heard anybody speak of God in this way. This was brand new to them. And so, the first kind of authority Jesus displays is his authority to teach. He has authority to teach. Now, the way this would work is the scribes or the elders would sit up in the front of the church. So some of you grew up in churches, and I'm very sorry about this, where uh, the pastors would sit in these goofy big chairs on the stage, and that's embarrassing. Like they're somehow enthroned above you, and then, uh, you know, whoever would get up and preach, and then they would sit back there and fall asleep half the time, and it would be, you know. Well, anyway. Well, in the synagogue, what would happen is, suppose that, uh, you know, somebody said, oh, well, I, you know, I have something to say today. I'd like to share this scripture. I'd like to share this word from the rabbi or whatever. So when they got up and talked, so they would get up and start sharing. Well, the elders who were sitting 
in front of the synagogue, they had to ratify that what was being said was the truth. In other words, if what you were saying, if they disagreed with it, they would shut you down. And when you got done teaching or while you were teaching, it wouldn't, they wouldn't wait till the end. As you were teaching, if they didn't ratify what you said, then the people wouldn't believe what you said because they were totally dependent upon the elders to ratify that, yes, this is true. Now, this is where this whole concept comes in of uh, people saying amen. That's ratifying, yes, this is true. I believe that. That's true. And so now we do the same thing. So that when, when somebody's speaking and somebody says amen, that's the ratification. They're just ratifying what they've said. So understand, that's how that worked. Now, I think I put John chapter 3, verse 5 in your handout. Is that right? Okay, so that's an example I don't know if you've ever heard this before or realized this before. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you, multiple times in the New Testament when he's teaching, he starts out with verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say. If that word in the Greek is the word amen, what Jesus does is, so, so think about what happened right there. Jesus says, amen, amen, before he speaks. You understand what just happened? He's saying, I'm ratifying what I'm about to say. You don't have the authority to ratify what I say. No man has authority to ratify the words of God. So he says, Amen, amen, before he says what he's going to say. So the point is, is that what, it, what Mark wants us to see and what the Gospels want us to see about his teaching is that what he says is not up for debate, which is just important for us to understand tonight. That if you accept, Jesus is saying, if you accept me as God, you have to accept everything that I say. And if you don't accept everything that I say, then you don't accept me as God. I mean, you see, some of us all our lives have been reading the Bible, and all our lives we've read truly, truly, or verily, verily, at Jesus' words, and we've just thought he was drawing emphasis to what he was saying. But in reality, that was a, an unheard of statement. Who ratifies their own words? Only him. And so it's, you know, I think sometimes we have this picture that Jesus goes into the synagogue and he, he maybe just, you know, he's trying to be undercover and he's just sort of, you know, uh, sneaking in there and then he's going to give him a little teaching or something. But that's not how that worked. He was so overtly intentional and, and bold and, and, and just... You, unmissable. You couldn't, if Jesus walked in the synagogue and said anything and you were in the synagogue, whatever he said, you never heard anything like that before. That's what we have to understand about what, what's going on here. And so when you hear people that say, you know, well, you know, I accept most of the things Jesus says or, you know, impossible. You cannot do that. 
It's impossible. It's all or nothing. 100%. The, the things you don't understand, the things you can't comprehend, the things. If you don't accept everything that he said, then you reject him and everything about him. And he's fine with that. He's fine with that. He just, he wants me and you to know the ground rules up front. Verily, verily, I say to you, and whatever follows is like, shut up. This is it. Period. So whoever's sitting in the big funky chair half asleep, don't bother amening because I don't want to hear it. Now, the difference is, is that, you know, uh, so the point is, is that there's, uh, it's, there's great value in understanding what Jesus is saying. And then there's great value in understanding that, uh, you know, as we have that tradition of saying amen today, that, that is, that's an important tradition. And when you say amen, there's a, that is a very loaded word. And if you remember last Sunday from the scripture out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises in God are yes and what? That's right ratified that's important that's a good that's a good powerful biblical word so immediately we see this sad reminder that astonishment at his authority is not the same as submission to his authority because they're amazed at what he says They've never heard anyone speak this way. They've never seen anyone with such confidence and such authority and all of these things. And yet, they're, what do they do? They're, they're unmoved by it. They're, they don't change. Well, not everyone's unmoved. One person is moved. Verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now remember, the only people in the synagogue that know who he is are the disciples. And suddenly, you got a demon-possessed man calling him out by name, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, I guess the word's out now. So Jesus rebuked him saying of course Jesus is still you know he's trying to not blow the lid off this thing just yet but he says be silent and come out of him not necessarily I don't believe he's saying be silent because he doesn't want to be uh, known for who he is as much as uh, I don't think Jesus is going to tolerate a demon speaking in church Okay, so he says, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, well, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He has commands, even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, here's my question. The first thing I think when I read this is always the same thing. And I think you should think this. You should ask this question. How long has this man been attending that synagogue? 
See, don't just stop and go, oh, wow, look at what just happened. There was a demon-possessed man. Just back up and say, now, wait a minute. That demon-possessed man didn't just drop out of the sky. Why would we assume that this, this was the first time he ever went to church? I don't assume that. I bet he's been going there a long time. I bet he, I bet he was the Sunday school director. I bet he had a position. He's probably sitting in the dumb chair. Here's the point I want you to understand. They had the Torah. What were they teaching from? The Torah. They had the truth. They had God's law. It's not like they were teaching the Koran. They had the Torah. They had the truth. The same words we, Old Testament books we have. You can have all the right potential and have no potency. And have no potency. And that's what I want you to understand. That man sat in church Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. And Jesus walks in, teaches one time, and he freaks out. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. I talk to the other pastors and the staff about this around here all the time. This is like one of the core central driving beliefs of my life. The presence of God forces a reaction from evil every single time. The best defense you have against evil is the truth. The truth. I had a conversation with somebody. Uh, a lady called me, uh, and uh, I've known her for a long time, and uh, you know, helped her with her. Uh, she runs a big ministry that, you know, works with ladies, so on and so forth. Anyway, she called me and said, you know, I, I got a situation. I need some uh, advice. And I said, okay. And she said, well, we are dealing with a situation where I think we have some demon possession. And I said, okay. So what, do you, what, what have you done? She said, well... Uh, you know, she started telling me what had happened. And so all the things that she was saying lined up with, yep, that sounds like what you're dealing with. And she said, well, what should we do? I said, the first thing you need to do is you need to go sit her down in a room with you and somebody else, and you need to open up your Bible and start reading. Just start reading your Bible and observe what happens. And you're going you're to figure, and then you're going to know for sure what you're dealing with. And then get her to start reading it. I remember one time, many years ago, uh, I suspected that we had a demonic situation in this lady's life. I don't, I don't you know, mean to use two female illustrations that just happened this way because it's certainly not... Uh, the way it normally goes, but I was, I suspected there was demonic influences in this lady's life, and so um, I was talking to somebody about it. I said, well, you know, I'm going to have to get to the bottom of this situation, and they said, well, 
Uh, and we were talking about it, and they said, well, you know, um, the church she came from, she sang in the choir. And I said, so? And she said, well, don't you think if you were demon-possessed, you know, you're up there singing? I go, no. Man wrote them songs. They don't mean anything. You could sing. That's not the same. And sure enough, uh, she ended up in the hospital. And I went in her hospital room. And I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of details. I know you're probably fascinated by this, but, you know, this isn't the point of tonight. But I went in her hospital room, and I sat down. It was late at night, and I sat down in the room, sat down in the chair, opened up my Bible. I started reading my Bible, and she started jerking and flopping and flipping and ripping all the lines out of her in the hospital room. And so I'm like, well, we know what we're dealing with here. See, the presence of God forces a reaction from evil. And what I want you to understand is that, uh, yes, evil is, is real and uh, darkness is uh, around. And it's, it's what the Bible tells us about the presence of evil should not be understated or overlooked in any way. But understand, you have the weapons of warfare in your hands. And so when you are reading the Word of God and memorizing the Word of God and reciting the Word of God and speaking the Word of God and talking about the things of God, and you know, those are things that evil cannot, it causes a reaction. And so what happens, what people don't understand is that you can get up and tell nice, happy, funny stories and, you know, read a scripture, and then spend the rest of the time telling jokes and entertaining people and draw a big, big a giant crowd and fill a building and have a, a bunch of people coming in there and calling it church. But here's what you're going to have. You're going to have a room full of evil because evil could sit there all day long. But when you preach the Word of God, it's going to cause evil can't handle it. And so it's, it's a protection mechanism. See, so immediately he's, he's, well, have you come to destroy us? Yeah. See, all demon possession is, is the extreme end of the condition that we're all in. It's, that's all it is. And it shouldn't freak you out. It's real. But it shouldn't freak you out. Because it's, in other words, like if, 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 if demon possession is terminal cancer, then the, my illustration would be if, if to be demon possessed is terminal cancer, then we all have some cancer cells growing inside of us. That's what I'm saying. I don't mean you all have demon cells inside of you. See, because a saved person can't be possessed by a demon because you're already possessed. Do you understand that? What I'm saying is everyone's possessed. Now, that's not what I'm saying. That's what the Bible says. Look, Romans chapter 6. Thanks be to God that you were once slave to sin. See, possessed, right? You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching by which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
So you weren't set free from one thing to just frolic around and do whatever you want to do. You were a slave to sin. And when, you, when the instant you be, were set free from sin, you, became, you entered into slavery to righteousness. Because every person is, is every minute of your day, you, of your life, if you're alive, you're enslaved to something. And the Bible says, whatever you obey enslaves you, right? Just read Romans. It's so crystal clear. We're all worshipers of something. Whatever we worship enslaves us. So it's just when we use that kind of terminology, it freaks people out, but that's the way the Bible talks about it. We're all under the control of something. So what's controlling you? That's the question. Don't ever be surprised that someone's under the control of something. We're all under the control of something or someone. So notice, demons have no trouble discerning the true identity of Jesus. Therefore, they always respond to him in fear. Always. Because they understand his true identity. And so when Jesus or his truth or the word of God, that's the thing. Like, you don't, you know, if, if, if when I'm walking in that hospital room, carrying my Bible, I'm not, you know, thinking, oh, I hope this thing don't jump on me. Or Look, I got the ultimate assault weapon in my hand. I'm not afraid of that. That can't harm me. It can't get me. It can't get me. So, you know, you got to understand how this game is played. See, there's no battle of equals in this moment. When Jesus starts teaching, he jumps up, starts screaming, convulsing, all this is going on. Look, what's Jesus doing? Is he convulsing? Does the Bible say, then Jesus broke out in a big sweat as he was worried about, he said, shut up and get out. That's all he said. Boom, that's it. The only convulsing, the only struggle, the only problem was on the other side. It didn't. It wasn't Jesus. So when the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light collide, the outcome is never, ever, ever in doubt. Never. Let's don't be people who wrongly give evil and Satan way too much credit. I mean, sometimes we see evil, and sometimes we see evil accomplishing things, and sometimes we see evil accomplishing things in people's lives, and it breaks our heart, and it's perfectly fine to point that out. But let's keep it in the context of that's only happening because there's a, a void of what's in my life and what's in most of your lives. You understand? There's no, there's no, no battle. The, when Jesus makes the command, the result is instantaneous and it's visible. And when, and the minute, the minute Jesus commands the, the demon to get out, the man who was once possessed is whole, he's sane, and he's free from that. Just like that just like that. So the principle is when Jesus heals, the result is instantaneous and complete. I'm just trying to use this 
this moment to try to clarify some places where we, some of you might have a tendency to get off in a ditch you shouldn't get off into. There's a lot of goofiness out there. So let's be clear. There's no such thing in the Bible as partial healings. Got that? There's no deliverance by degree. Doesn't happen that way. There's no halfway healings. There's nobody that comes to Jesus who's mute and, you know, and has heart disease. Jesus heals him so that he can speak, but he still has heart disease. That's just not, that's not how that works, okay? So that's how you can immediately sniff out the fraudulence of all the ridiculousness of modern-day healing is because it's instantaneous and it's complete and it's visible. So if his teaching created a bit of a stir, a buzz, what do you think is happening now, Capernaum? Now that he's cast this demon out of, you know, the Sunday school director, man, it's, it's a frenzy. Verse 27, and they were all amazed. Well, they ought to be. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, well, what is this, this new teaching, this authority? He, he has commands that he can command even unclean spirits, and they obey him. So Mark wants us to see that Jesus has supreme authority in the sphere of truth and in the sphere of evil. See, first, the first authority we are introduced to is his teaching, right? And then immediately the teaching forces a response from evil, and so then we see his authority executed over evil. So you can see where authority is his key. He told us that in the beginning, and now you're starting to see it build. Truth first, then evil. And then immediately following this event, we see his authority over the realm of sickness and death. And again, it's just very instructive for us to see how the Bible talks about this. Immediately, he leaves the synagogue and enters the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So he goes to Peter's house, and Simon's mother-in-law was ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. Now, let's pay attention to what that says. Because there's so many instructive things about just the little details about what Jesus does. It's, it's against the Jewish tradition. In other words, so in the synagogue, they would have taught as if it were in the Torah that it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath because they had blurred the lines between the tradition of men and the Word of God. Unless, of, unless it was an imminent death situation. So if somebody was in imminent danger and certainly going to die, then you could heal on the Sabbath and it wouldn't have been a violation. But is that the case with Peter's mother-in-law? No, she just had a fever. Now, granted, a fever in that time would have been way worse than a fever today. But still, there's no indication at all that she would have been on death's doorstep. So take note of the details. It is the Sabbath. That's important. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He goes there. It's the Sabbath. Now, he's 
been in the synagogue. Then he's healed the demon-possessed guy. Now he's moved to Peter's house, and his mother-in-law's sick. And so how easy would it have been for Jesus to wait until that evening because once evening hits, it's no longer the Sabbath. He could have easily just waited. She's laying there with a fever, no problem. Let's just wait an hour. It'll be evening. I'll heal her fever. Everybody will be fine. She's probably been laying there for days. Another hour's not going to hurt her. Let's not cause a big stir. But that's not what he does. Again, like I'm saying, it's not like there, there's like, there's just understand, see, there's not one shred of timidity in the Lord Jesus. Not a shred of it. His assault on legalism is 100% intentional. He went out of his way to make this point. It would have been so easy for him to wait and not do it. But you see, he, he's declaring war against the traditions of man. I wonder, are there things in your life? Have there been things in your past? Have there been traditions that you've elevated too high that God's declaring war against? Hmm? There Are there things, do you have preferences in your life where you blur the line between what's the Word of God and what you associate so closely with the Word of God? Jesus hates that. Do you understand? He hates that. He wasn't being mean. He was attacking something that he hates. God hates that. We got to be very careful about what we're doing. So he comes in and he does what he always does. Now, in this time, who would have went in that room? Only probably Peter's wife. Because first of all, a, a fever is a bad situation. You know, it's not like you could go down to urgent care and get some antibiotics. And so, you know, they, they knew that, you know, when people got sick that they were contagious. How do we know that? Because they made lepers live all the way outside in the middle of nowhere. You couldn't come 50 feet around somebody, right? Talk about social distancing. So they, they knew that. Jesus goes right in. And here's what you never did. The one thing you never do, you don't touch a sick person. Jesus could have, Jesus didn't even have to go in the room. We've seen Jesus heal people that were 20 miles away. But that's not what he does. He goes in the room and he takes her by the hand. He goes in, he touches her. He touches lepers. When he heals mute people, he puts his hand on their mouth. He puts his hand on blind people's eyes. He, he's, I mean, he, he, he breaks all the rules. He goes straight in and and he grabs her, and he, and he heals her. And then notice what the Bible says. And she began to serve them. I want you to underline that. And she began to serve them. Now, how many of you in here have had a fever? Can we safely say that everybody in the room has had a fever? Now, if you've ever had a fever, here's what you know. 
You've laid in bed for three or four days, raging with fever, burn up, sweating, you know, stinking, nasty, grumpy, needy, whiny. I mean, not all of you, just the men in the room. <laughs> fever breaks. You hop up and you out in the yard weed eating, aren't you? No, you're not, fool. You are so pathetic and lethargic and pitiful and you don't have and skinny and you're like, oh, honey, could you please make me something to eat? And <laughs> yeah. She hops up, boom. There's no lag time. There's no, you notice that? I just want you to understand when when you're you know, when people are, you know, talking about healing, well, let's just understand, when God heals, boom, instantly, it's like it never even happened. She doesn't have to wait around to regain her strength. Then, and it's so specific how Mark does this, that evening, you know why he's saying that? He's saying, because he wants you to be reminded, Jesus didn't wait for the Sabbath to end. Now it's evening at sundown. Now the Sabbath is over, and what happens? Well, now, well, how come they don't come? Because they're all afraid. So now that it's not the Sabbath, here comes all the sick and the oppressed by demons. They start crowding around, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. How pitiful is this? Your, your, your loved one is sick. Your, your child is demon-possessed. You're, you're in these perilous situations. A man shows up in your town who can heal him. And you wait until the Sabbath is over. You talk about bondage, you talk about oppression. You see how powerful the traditions of man can get? How twisted we can get about things that are not biblical? How ridiculous we can get about things that are written by people? People wrote them. Who cares? Think about it. And so they wait. Now, here's what I want us to pay close attention to. The fact that there's two categories, not one. There are sick people, and there are people oppressed by demons. Now, why do I point that out? Because I think it's very instructive. Again, Mark's just giving us opportunity to learn and understand. Those are not the same thing. And here's why the Bible wants you to understand that. Because, again, beware, the Bible does not attribute all illness to demons. All sickness is not uh, 
is, is not some, doesn't mean that there's a, the presence of evil. It's the presence of fallenness. And I think it's important for us to understand that. Because, again, it's another subtle way that a lot of false teaching has infiltrated the, the evangelical church by just lumping any physical ailment or illness or whatever the case may be, and suddenly it's all, you know, demon, demonic in nature. Well, that's interesting because the Bible totally rejects that concept. They're two completely different categories. Illness, demon oppressed. Not the same thing. It's worth noting. Then verse 35. And here's really where he brings this whole thing together for us in authority. So then rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee preaching in their synagogue and casting out demons. Now, Mark is focusing in on the authority of Jesus. And he's, he illustrates his authority to teach. He illustrates his authority over evil. And then he shows us how Godly authority is always under authority. Notice the one who, the only person, now think about this. The only person in the history of the world who can ever begin what they're going to say with amen, amen, and then speak, gets up early in the morning and goes out and spends time with his father. See, true authority comes from being under authority. And so Jesus is, I mean, Mark is just pointing this out. Now, the whole point that we're driving at is these miracles that G Jesus is doing these supernatural things. He's defying the, the, the you know, the laws of uh, anything that we know and experience as normal. And yet, here we have exactly why Jesus is doing this and, and what's the point of all this. Because, of course, the disciples are like, man, this place is going crazy. Like, we're about to, this is, man, we're about to have it going on. People are coming from all over the place. They're swarming everywhere. And then they, so when they, when the disciples go to bed that night, Every one of them fell asleep with a giant smile on their face, partially because they had seen things they couldn't imagine that day, okay? But also, let's be honest, they're friends with Jesus. They're on the inside, like, this is going to be amazing. I mean, we're hanging out with Jesus. I mean, how 
great is this? And they all went to bed thinking, when we get up in the morning, it's about to be showtime. Like it's going to be on. And so we're going to, they were probably huddled up over in the corner saying, you know, Peter was, you know, doling out uh, responsibilities. And they were saying, all right, you know, Andrew, I want you to be in charge of crowd control. I want you all to, let's make single file rows, you know, this way down the road and around the corner. And, you know, let's keep everything in check and nah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. Because, you know, they wake up in the morning they're like ready to eat their Wheaties and get this show started. And where's Jesus? Uh-oh. He's gone. We got to find him. So then they go on this panic search to find him. And when they find him, he has zero interest in what they're most passionate about. Now, is that not the situation today? Think about this. What, do mo- what are most people today wound up about miracles signs wonders everybody wants to see some miraculous thing wants God to do something for them the very thing that they're most excited about Jesus has no interest in whatsoever none they're missing the whole point Here's what Jesus makes crystal clear by what he says. The miracles were important, yes, but they weren't most important. They were important because he loves people. They were important because he wants to serve people. Because, but, because remember, remember when we looked at last week from the Gospel of John, the wedding at Cana, when Jesus shows up on the scene in John chapter 1, we beheld his glory The only begotten of God was full of grace and truth, right? Grace precedes truth. How many thousands of times have I said this? Jesus shows up on the scene. He starts healing all these people. Everybody gets in a frenzy. They're all jazzed up about all this. He's casting out demons. He's he's showing his authority. And everybody's totally enamored with this authority over these things. And yet, that's not the point. The real point is the truth. Grace is what paves the way for the truth. The truth is the point. The truth is what this is all about. We need to really understand this and and. and Get this, that, you know, Jesus had no interest in engaging in healing campaigns. All of that was to authenticate his identity and the message he had been given by his father. All of this, this miraculous activity, all of this authority was centered around all the amazement in the synagogue, all the demon-possessed people, all the sicknesses that were healed, all of that is strictly a precursor to authenticate and validate to show you his ultimate authority in the message that he's bringing. Because listen, what what you got to understand is that the vast, overwhelming majority of people who were healed in the New Testament by Jesus died and went to hell. 
they went to hell. They, they came in contact with Jesus. They were healed by Jesus. Think about this. Jesus tells the story of 10 lepers. He heals all 10 lepers. All 10 lepers turn and run to go tell the priest, show the priest their skin so that they can be declared clean. Only one turns around and comes back. 90%. You want to use that as a, a, a base model? That's 90% of those lepers went to hell. So when we're clamoring for, for God to do some miraculous thing in our life, understand, well, what is the... I mean, what... what what good is it? Is it good? Sure, it's good. It's wonderful. It's wonderful because we're experiencing the grace of God in our life, right? But, but that's not eternal. That's not what this is all about. It's not about a miracle or a healing or some marvelous. So, so now let's, let's personalize this. Because this isn't our world every day. But what is our world every day? What's your world every day? You want God to move in your life, don't you? And when God moves in your life, it's exciting, isn't it? Yes. And it's encouraging. And when you, when you tell other people about the things God did in your life, it's awesome. When you share that with me, I'm super encouraged. And I'm really excited about what God's done in your life. That's awesome. And we should be. But let's make sure we don't miss the point. Why is God doing that in your life? Why? Is it, is it just about that thing? Come on. I mean, when this happens, it happens all the time around. It happens all the time. It, and it doesn't happen in my life because I'm spiritual. It happens in your life too. I just think that a lot of times a lot of people miss it. But it happens all the time. Two days ago. Young mom in the church comes to talk to me, her and her husband. She's having a difficult time. Young kids, you know, all these things just bearing down on them. So we're talking. And immediately becomes evident to me, you got a job problem. Your problem is your job. God's given you two little kids, and you got a job that is just choking the life out of you as a mom. That's why you're so miserable right now. And immediately she was like, you know, knew that that was it. But what are we going to do? I mean, here we are. We're, you know, we're just starting out. We got a house note. We got a car note. We got all these things. What are we, you know, it's, it's oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. And I said, ho, 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 ho. I understand. Here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to ask God to provide you a job. And then they said, but now wait now. The husband says, my job, I don't have insurance at my job. So if she doesn't work full time, we don't have any health insurance. I said, okay. We're going to pray 
And we're going to ask God to provide you a job that's part-time and that has insurance. They looked at me like I was about to pray that a unicorn would drop out of the sky and start dancing around in my office. Like pixie dust was about to start fluttering around or something. Like a what? I said, that's what we're going to do. So I said, let's pray. So we start praying. Okay. So they get up. We're done praying. I hug them. They hug me. Out the door they go. The next day, the next day, they get a phone call from a family friend. It says, hey, I, we want to hire you to come work for us. Same occupation you're doing now. Only we want you to come work for our family business, doing the same exact thing. Part-time health insurance. Now, it, it wasn't because I prayed. It wasn't because anything. It was just because God wanted to be awesome that day. That's the only thing. But here's the point. The point is not okay. Remember what I said Sunday. Let's don't all start dancing around satisfied because now all of a sudden God moved and, and the next day we get a, a phone call and there's a job on the thing. I'm going, hey, you just licked the spoon. That's all you did. The good stuff's still in the oven. In other words, don't be satisfied. Like, understand, that's who your father is. Why did he do that? Because he wants you to know he's awesome. And he wants you to be jazzed up about him and about the purposes that he has in your life. And his purposes in your life is not just to do things for you. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's a message called the gospel. And so if he gave you a job, at this place, part-time, with health insurance, which is not hard for him. And really, he didn't do that for you or me. Or he, I mean, I told him, he did that for your kids. That's who he did it for, but he, he did it. So, so when you go to that job, the, day, the first day you walk in, you know what? You, here's what you know. God put you there. I already know. I don't even know anything about it, but I know there's people there for you, waiting on you. There's people there for you. He could have put you anywhere, but he put you there. It's about the message. It's about the message. Whenever, when God moves in your life, when he lets you lick the spoon, he's showing you. Don't, don't just think, oh, wow, like all you got is the spoon. No. The gospel's in the oven. The message that sets people free for all eternity is in the oven. See, no one's going to heaven because they licked the spoon. Do you understand that? Ten million years from now, there's going to be people in heaven Because God let you lick the spoon and you were faithful and you told them about what's cooking in the oven. You see? That's what it's all about. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
It's not about the healing. See, he's focused on, he, he even said, that's not, the, that's not why I've come. In Mark chapter 10, well, why did he come? He says, the Son of Man has come not to serve or to, to be served or to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many. That's his point. That's his mission. That's what he's doing. He came. He's going to do all these other things, but what's it all about? It's all about what's in the oven. He hung on the cross for what's in the oven. You got that? It's about what's in the oven. It's about the gospel. It's about the truth. That's the thing. That is it. The grace just paves a way to get there. So, so many people were astonished and amazed by Jesus. But look at the difference between being impressed by him and entrusting oneself to him. Yeah, they're all running around. You know, Jesus is, is loving and he's kind and he's compassionate and he's patient and he's wonderful. And here's the thing. He walks into a, 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 a sea of people, a sea of humanity that's broken and hurting and wounded and struggling. And here's the thing. And, and they fully deserve it. And they blasphemed him. They sinned against him. They've, see, that's what I, I want you to understand. That, that when, I, when I encountered God at 25 years old, I, listen, I deserved. I deserved. I earned the wrath that was hanging over my head. I deserve to burn in hell for all eternity. I 100% deserved it. I had done everything in my power to go against everything that God stood for and what mattered to him. And you know what he did? He walked up to me and he handed me the spoon. That's what he does. He walks into a sea of people, and it's a total, and, and they deserve it. But you know what he does? He blesses them. He hands them the spoon. He says, lick some, taste some. Taste how good this is. You ever had chocolate frosting? Like, this is amazing. From scratch, maybe, just check this out. And you're like going, whoa, this is amazing. And then you just walk away, and you got this story of, oh, this guy, for no reason, just walked up, and this happened, and this. That wasn't the point. Why is he handing you the spoon? Because he's trying to show you that he loves you, that he has, a, he has bigger purposes for you in your life. So when he answers your prayers, when he works in your life, when he's, when he's working in your family, when he's... You know, and here's, I don't know how this works in your life, but I know how this works in my life. The things that have grieved me the most and the things that I've prayed for the longest and the things that I've hoped for and, and, and dreamed of and pleaded with God for years and years and years to happen. When God moved in those situations, he always did it when I wasn't paying attention. Always. Always. So that I would know that I didn't have anything to do with it. 
Remember how I've told you multiple times that I had this burning dream in my heart. I felt like God had called me to, to start Rescue 100, but it was just this impossible task that could never be done. And I just beat on every door I could, and I, I pleaded with God, and I begged God, you got to help me, you got to show me, you got to, and, and every door slammed, 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 slammed. Nothing. Zero. I mean, I couldn't move an inch. And it just was part of the process that just beat me down. And then I went on sabbatical, you remember? I took three months off to get my feet back under me. And when I got back from sabbatical, I hadn't been in the office for three months. There's a big stack of mail sitting on my desk. I go in there. I start going through the mail. There's this letter. The Supreme Court of Mississippi, Lord, I'm fitting to go to jail. This cannot be good. Or one of these fools in this church have done something sure enough bad. I open it up. Dear Mr. Carnes, The governor of Mississippi has informed me about the things that you're trying to do. What? I would like to meet with you at your convenience. I will come to the coast from Jackson at your convenience. Please contact me so we can set up a time. Okay. You see what I'm saying? That's how God works all the time in my life. That's how he wants to work in your life. All of a sudden you turn around and there's a spoon. But don't get tangled up in the spoon. Why? Why? Because all these people, this is an illustration, all these people in the gospel, they're tangled up in the wrong thing. These people get healed and they see all these amazing things. And what good does it do them? No eternal good at all. So the principle is that experiencing Jesus' miracles is far less valuable than experiencing his salvation. Now that seems very simple and goes, should, should just be obvious to all of us, but we've got to live our lives according to that truth. Why is God working in your, in your life, I mean, I see God working in young families in this church all the time. And I know that, the, you know why he's doing that? He's doing it because he's good and because he's God and because he loves you and all that. But you know what he's doing? He's, he's working in the generation to come. I see him working mommies and daddies all the time. He's working in your kids. He's, he's, he's setting the stage for what's fixing to happen. That's what he's doing. Yes. He, he's setting up gospel. So let's be warned that so oftentimes people still today crave a sign, miss eternity. 
lick the spoon, never experience what's in the oven. He's working. Maybe, maybe you, you could feel a little discouraged tonight because there's something you've been really wanting God to do in your life. Listen, I, I can assure you that if you, if, if you know God, then whatever you're praying, God's hearing and he's answering. And if he's not doing what you want him to know, or if he's not doing what you want him to do, then you know what he's doing? Something better. That's what he's doing. We just don't understand right now. But he hears. He hears everything you pray. He knows. And sometimes, I mean, you know, I'm weird. I feel like it's a healthy thing. I just feel like sometimes you're going to be beat down and discouraged. And, you know, I think sometimes we just go to God and we just say, God, I'm just struggling. I need a spoon. Just let me lick a spoon. I'm not even asking for any particular thing. What I just just I just need to lick a spoon. It's been hard. And he just has a way of doing that. One of you will come up and tell me some amazing spoon story and I'm and I say Lord thank you see I needed that I just need a little boost let's pray God thank you for your we always we say God thank you you're good but Lord you're so much more than good and when we open your word and start reading the Bible and we realize the way that you moved about on this earth and how you impacted people's lives, Lord. I thank you for all of the the amazing testimonies in this room of your grace being made evident in, in our lives, Lord. All the things that you that you're doing that, that we're aware of, Lord, the ways you're working in, in families for the sake of their children and the and the gospel in the generation to come, thank you. The way that you're using your uh, supreme authority over truth to just drive things into our heart that just set us ablaze and, and, and show us amazing things about you. Your, your authority over evil. The realization that, yes, wow, what an evil and dark world we live in. But we're not afraid. We have the ultimate weapon in our possession. We've been possessed by you. All we can we can be bothered. We can be uh, burdened. We can be uh, we can be inconvenienced. We can struggle. We can also, but we can't lose. We can't lose. And so God. May we wake up tomorrow and be like an army unleashed upon the Gulf Coast with these spoons. Wherever we go to work, wherever we wake up and go to school, wherever we, whatever rooms we walk into, 
Can we be vessels of grace? Will you use us to show people the truth? Thank you. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your authority. Thank you for the amazing gift of salvation that can never be taken from us. Never. We rejoice tonight as your people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I love you. Have a great night.